0: Turn, please, then, to our text this morning, which comes from 1 Thessalonians, as we begin chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Please, then, hear with me the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Thus far is the reading of God's Holy Word. Brothers and sisters, where has our boldness gone? Where has our boldness gone? You see, throughout the history of the Christian church, Christianity has been at odds with culture. We've been at odds with those who have despised the faith and the confession of the church and have sought to silence us through fear and through death. But it was in those times, and it was at those periods when Christians stood up and they would not be silenced and they would not renounce Christ and they would not deny His Word. Right? And it was because of this boldness that actually helped to propel the Christian faith forward. Let me provide you with an example of what I mean. As history records it, in the early 2nd century, Christians weren't being persecuted in the sense that the the Roman Empire wasn't going around looking for Christians to gather and to capture and to arrest. And this is because the emperor at the time, Trajan, didn't want to use the resources of the Roman Empire to go around capturing Christians for such a little crime, being a Christian. But what we do have record of is Trajan's correspondence with a bishop named Pliny the Younger. And in it we are told that what they will allow is for citizens, pagans, dissenters of the Christian faith to turn in Christians. Right? And in turning in Christians then, Christians are asked to renounce the faith. They are asked to deny Christ. They are told by the, the Roman authorities to burn incense to the emperor. Right? To bow the knee to the foreign gods. And if they didn't do this, guess what? That was a grave crime then. That was a grave crime. And so if, if the Christian would say, yes, I will do all as you say, the Roman Empire would say, okay, go on your way. Right? But if they refused, they were put to death. They refused, they were put to death. And this is something that happened actually to Ignatius of Antioch. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the name Ignatius. He was a, a bishop of Antioch in the early 2nd century. And so... We aren't sure exactly who brought the accusation against Ignatius of Antioch, but what we we do know is that at this time he's writing against heretical doctrine. So it could have been someone he was writing against. It could have been a pagan who turned him in. But irregardless, he was captured, he was tried, he was condemned to death. And so as Ignatius is being brought to Rome to face his demise, he writes seven letters. He writes seven letters. And it is this letter that he writes to the church in Rome, that really gives us an understanding of what his thinking was as he was going along, knowing he was going to face execution. Now, as he's traveling, Ignatius hears that some of his supporters want to uh, free him from his captors. This is what he hears. And in his letter to Rome, this is what he says. He tells them not to. He tells the church of Rome, Don't free me. Rather, pray for me. And he goes on to say this. Now I begin to be a disciple. I care for nothing of visible or invisible things so that I may but win Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, only may I win Christ Christ jesus wow. wow right ignatius was unwilling to deny christ even if it meant he lived right? being a christian no matter the manner of death that ignatius was to suffer was a sweeter option for him than to live denying christ right? and what happened by ignatius's stand? what resulted in his stand, in the stand of so many before him and after him. Right? Christianity explodes onto the scene. And it becomes the dominant religion of the Roman Empire, we're told, making up more than half of the Roman Empire by the middle of the 4th century. And so my point in recounting this story to you is to say that where has this boldness gone? We are lacking this boldness today. Right? And it is this lack of boldness today that has resulted in a watered-down Christianity. right? A Christianity that is declining in numbers. A Christianity that is capitulating to society. Right? This is not the example we have from the Apostle Paul, is it? No. What does Paul say in verse 2? But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. See, Paul had boldness in the face of conflict. Right? What is happening today in so many denominations is so disheartening. See, culture is saying you know, Christianity is misogynistic. Right? We, we treat women inferior. And so what does so many churches try to do in response? No, we don't. No, we don't look. We've made, we've made women pastors. Right? Culture said Christianity is transphobic and homophobic. So what is the response of so many churches today? No, we're not. No, we're not. Look, we'll show you. We'll hang rainbow flakes from our churches. And we'll preach that God made you this way, even though Scripture says otherwise. Culture says Christians are anti-intellectual because we affirm a a creation in the space of six days. So what do so many churches do nowadays? They deny six-day creation and they affirm evolution. Culture says, you Christians, your worship is so boring and outdated. Right? And so what is the response of so many churches today? Right? Well, we'll, we'll change our worship for you. We'll make it a concert. Right? Little to no preaching. And it'll just be song and worship bands. Right? That's what we've done today. Right? But you know what all this capitulating to society has done? It's harmed Christianity. It hasn't helped it. All it's done is blurred the lines of what true Christianity is and created a bunch of churches and churchgoers who have no idea what orthodox Christianity is anymore. Right? They can't give you a coherent answer into what it is they believe. Right? Or what the gospel is. Or who Christ is. And that is not Christianity. And people see this. People aren't dumb. I was, this past week I was listening to a podcast and the host of the podcast went to a Christian, uh, not to a Christian, I'm sorry, a secular campus. And he was going around asking students uh, what they thought uh, drove people to Christianity. And he came to this young woman and he asked her. And her response to her was, well, I don't know what drives people to Christianity, but I can tell you what drives them away. And to sum up her answer, it is we've become less orthodox and more radical. Right? See, we think that if we change our churches... If we become like the world, that the world will look at us favorably. They'll like us, right? They'll want to. Our numbers will grow. People will want to come in and join the churches. But it's actually the opposite that's taking place. Right? People who are curious about the Christian faith, especially younger adults, see what's going on and say, "If this is Christianity, I want no part of it." Because what I'm seeing at these churches, I can just get from the world. I don't need to come to church for this stuff, right? Because many of them were probably taught in some private school growing up, or maybe taught in semi-Christian homes, what the Christian faith is, and now they're going off to colleges, or they're becoming, uh, you know, having young families, and they're going to these churches, and they're saying, they're not teaching anything that I learned as a as a kid, and they want no part of it. Right? They want no part of it. And so, if we hope to have any effect on the world, we must be bold. We must have boldness. We can't become like the world. We must remain the church. even if that means persecution and suffering. You see, Paul understood something that so many Christian leaders today do not, that being a Christian will cost you. It will cost you. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we count it a privilege to suffer for Christ? Do we count it a privilege to suffer for Christ? Ignatius did. Paul did. Luther did. And you and I, as we sit here today, guess what? We don't really have it that bad, do we? We don't have it that bad in society. Right? We are able to gather today and worship freely. Right? We're able to send our kids to private Christian schools or we're able to homeschool our kids if we like. But guess what? Maybe for young children here today, or for their children, that might not be the case. The way culture is going in 20, 30, 40 years... Right? They might say to us, you can't talk about that topic in church. And if you do, you will lose your building. You will go to jail. They might say, guess what? You can no longer send your kids to private school, private Christian school, or even homeschool them. You have to send them to public school. And they must learn what it is the government wants them to learn. And so the question is, are we ready for this? Are we ready for this? You know, regardless though of the direction of culture, whether it is going pro-Christian or anti-Christian, we must be bold. We must be preparing our children to be bold in the future if they want to have any impact. Right? Yet we must ask, where does this boldness come from? Right? What are the things we are to be bold about and why? And from these two questions derive our two points this morning. Right? The first point is boldness comes from our knowledge of God and the truth of the gospel message. Point one. Boldness comes from our knowledge of God and the truth of the gospel message. And our second point is, boldness comes from a pure heart that desires to please God. Right. Point two. Boldness comes from a pure heart that desires to please God. Now remember here in chapter two, Paul is beginning his defense of his ministry. There are unbelieving Jews and Greeks who are trying to undermine Paul's ministry here and try to poison the well, so to speak. They're trying to say, if we can defame Paul, if we can defame his his, uh, ministry and the minister, then perhaps we can get these these Christians to turn away from Christ. And because of the seriousness of this charge, and because of Paul's love for these saints, he defends his ministry. He tells them, No, brothers and sisters, you've seen how we acted amongst you. You've you've seen and heard what it is proclaimed amongst you. You know this isn't true. And so Paul begins by reminding them the effect that he had on them. In verse 1 he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. He said our coming to you did not have an empty effect. Right? You know it had a great impact upon you. He said, he also says, nor did we come to take from you. Right? We didn't come empty-handed either. Rather, we came giving of ourselves to you. Right? These unbelievers were questioning Paul's motives. We aren't told exactly what it is that they were saying about Paul. But the way that Paul's answering them in verses 1 through 4 gives us a hint of what their argument is against Paul. What those charges were that they were leveling against him. And so Paul says there there was no selfish intent on our part because we came to as we're suffering persecution. His motives are seen in the fact that although they're suffering persecution, he still came to them. He didn't cower and run and hide. Rather, they came to help and aid the Thessalonians as they're being persecuted. right? And that is the very opposite of selfishness, isn't it? Rather, by coming to them, all they've done is open themselves up for more persecution. And he goes on to tell us why they came, even though they were suffering, in verse 2. He says, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul says, We came to you irrespective of what was going on in our life and what we were dealing with because we have boldness in our God. They were bold. And they were willing to speak freely because they were confident that God would bless them as they were doing the work He was called to do. God would not send them to Thessalonica if He had not opened the door. He would not have sent them if He did not equip them to speak the Word. And so Paul knew the power of God was at work within them. They knew that they could be bold knowing that the will of God was being done. And what are we told that they were bold in declaring It was a gospel, Paul said. Their boldness stemmed from their knowledge that the gospel is true. Today it's sad, but so many who would call themselves Christians don't know what the gospel is. If you ask them, what's the gospel? They might tell you their own personal conversion story. They might tell you it's about obeying God. They might tell you it's about being a a good person. But that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. The gospel, brothers and sisters, is a historical fact. The Gospel is a historical fact. It's something that happened in the space and time. It is a reality of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who now reigns at the right hand of the Father on high. That is the Gospel. Paul wasn't bold in his own subjective experience, but he was bold in the objective reality of what Christ did and what he accomplished. Paul knew the message was true. This is why he says in verse 3 and part of verse 4, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. These unbelievers were arguing that Paul was declaring a, a message that was false. A message that was deceitful, that was not true. But Paul tells them, you know this isn't so. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. Paul said, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. See, they understood this historical fact occurred. And they themselves trusted in this message. They had knowledge of it. They assented to it. And they trusted in it. That is faith. right? They trusted in Christ and what he accomplished. Yet Paul also reminds them that they know this message is true because it was at work amongst them. Remember what we read last week. They turned from idols to God. Not only did they turn from idols to God, but they turned from idols to God to serve this God. And so they had experiential knowledge that the gospel was true. Not only that the gospel was objectively true, a historic fact, but they subjectively had experiential knowledge that it was true. You see, this is what I'm saying. The gospel is objectively true, and it's true whether you have subjective experience or not. But as Christians, we are promised to experience Christ. We are promised to experience Christ. And so this is another way in which we know that the promises of God are true and for us. Right? We believe them because they really happen. Yet, our faith is bolstered and it grows in the fact that we are experiencing what Christ promises. Right? We are experiencing the effects of that faith. And boldness is one of those effects. It was that boldness, that allowed Stephen to stand before the council and to proclaim the gospel even though he was to be stoned. Right? What does Stephen say in Acts chapter 7 verse 51? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have betrayed and murdered. You see, Stephen didn't remain quiet. Stephen didn't shut his mouth. Stephen didn't speak cowardly to the council and say, well, guys, this is, this is my truth. Maybe it's not your truth. Maybe you have your own truth. Isn't that what we hear so often today? This is my truth, and that's your truth. But Paul isn't saying what is just true for Paul. right? Christians, especially ministers of the gospel aren't declaring what is just true for us. Men and women wouldn't be dying for a truth that is just true for them personally, which is no different than the truth of their neighbor who's an atheist. No, they were willing to die for a truth that is truth for all. That Christ came, that Christ died. That is a fact that cannot be denied. And that apart from God's saving grace, apart from faith in the Son of God, you will die in your sins. This is a message that we must proclaim boldly to the world. And so if you are unwilling to, with this boldness, declare this message, you must ask yourselves, who do I seek to please? Do I seek to please men? Or do I seek to please God? Do I seek to please men or God? Right here then is our second point of the morning. Paul says in verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel... So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. You see, Paul's boldness to declare this message sprang from a a pure heart that was desirous to please his Father in Heaven. This is the problem with church today. We have become people pleasers. We have altered the message of the Gospel to make it palpable for society. But you see, that message, brothers and sisters, has no power. That message has no power. That message is the cause of people walking around today believing they're Christians when they're really not. Right? And who gave us the right to do that? Who gave us the right to alter the message? It's Christ's message. It's not ours. We don't have the right to change it. But rather, we have been, as the church, entrusted with the message. And what a glorious privilege we ought to look at that with. And what care we ought to take in protecting the gospel. As Christ's chosen servants, we've been chosen with this message to declare to the world, and so we must not change its message. It's not ours to change. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Let's say you signed a contract with a contractor. And you say, I want my bathroom to be remodeled. Uh, I want this tub to be ripped out and I would like a shower stall and I want some vinyl flooring, please, with a, a small vanity. And you hand him the keys and you go on vacation and you come back two weeks later and the contractor's tore out walls. He put a whirlpool tub in. There's no shower stall and he has some checkered ceramic tiling on the floor. What would your response be? You would say, you have no authority to do what you did. Right, it's my house. It's my money. This isn't what I said, right? This is in fact what is going on today. God gave us this message. It's His message. He's enlisted us to go into the world and and to proclaim this message. And yet, there are those with the goal to change the message, but it's not theirs to change. But that's because they care to please men and not God. But this was not so with Paul and the disciples. Because Paul recognized that this gospel, the gospel that they've been given, has power in it because it's that very thing. It's God's gospel. It's God's gospel. And so that is the message we must declare with boldness, whether the world approves of it or not. Remember in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says he knows that the saints were chosen in Christ. Because the gospel came to them not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. If we hope, brothers and sisters, that any impact on the world, we have to stop trying to please men and women and make it our sole responsibility to please God. To please God. Paul could go about and declare this message in the midst of suffering because he had boldness that this was pleasing to his Father in Heaven. Paul knew that his desire to please God sprang from a a pure heart for he had God's approval. Paul was tried and tested and came out to be true. He was unwavering in his faith. Paul at any time could have ran away. He could have abandoned God. He could have had a life that was comfortable and easy. But he did not because his heart was set on loving God. I ask you here today at Covenant Baptist Church, is this our heart? Is our heart set on loving God? Is our ha- heart set on serving Him with holy intentions? Is our heart set on pleasing God? Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. You see, brothers and sisters, we are soldiers of God. We are soldiers of God. We have been given our, our marching orders. He has enlisted us for service. His service. Right? Was it not Jesus who said, Go to all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is our charge, brothers and sisters. And so we are to have godly zeal in carrying this out. For zeal in the one with the pure heart, it cannot be quenched by the world when we have the power of God on our side. No. This is why we can have boldness. We can have boldness because our hearts have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. We can have boldness because God has granted to us faith in Christ. We can have boldness because God's divine power is working within us. We can have boldness knowing that we have been enlisted to proclaim the Gospel. And as we faithfully proclaim this Gospel, we know that God is working. That His will is being accomplished. No one can thwart the will and purposes of God. Rather, it is those who seek to alter the Gospel that are displeasing to God. They are the ones who are displeasing to God. They are the ones who are storing up wrath for themselves. For that day when the Lord returns in glory. It is those leaders of churches today when the Lord returns will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I proclaim your name? And He will say to them, Depart from me. I don't know you, you worker of lawlessness. This is the very same thing that Paul says at the end of chapter 2 in verse 16. That they've hindered us from speaking to the Gentiles, that they might be saved, so as to always fill up the measure of their sin. But wrath has come upon them at last. See, today they've perverted the gospel. They've perverted the gospel. They shut out, shut the doors of the kingdom of so many of their of their listeners there, right? In in perverting this gospel. But they will have their due recompense at God's appointed time. And so as we draw to a conclusion, brothers and sisters, I hope we have seen this morning that if we desire to have any impact on the world, we must not become like them. This is the problem that's plaguing Christianity today. And so in order that we ourselves don't fall into that pitfall, as so many good-intentioned people have done, we must remain having boldness. Having boldness. But boldness in what? Where is that boldness derived from? Remember, that boldness isn't derived from our own pride. It's not derived from our own arrogance. It's not derived from the world. But rather, it's derived from who we know God to be. He is truth. He is wisdom. He sent His Son to die for the sins of all those who would believe in Him. Right? Right? We can also be bold, brothers and sisters, because we know the message we declare is true. The Gospel is the proclamation of what Christ has done in history. And knowing the saving message to be true, it should be our desire to go forth and to faithfully preach this message to all in hopes that God would save all those sinners who are in need of His grace. If we care for people, brothers and sisters, we will not alter the message. We will not alter it. It is those actually who alter the message that demonstrate their lack of care for their neighbor. See, they think they're doing something good for people by altering the message, by making it easier for someone to come and follow. But what they're doing is showing hatred to their neighbor, not love. Rather, it is us who are loving our neighbor. right? What does Proverbs 20, 27, verse 5 say? Open rebuke is better than love concealed. Right? When we declare the pure and unadulterated gospel, we are loving our neighbors. We are loving them. For the powers in the preached word that God has enlisted us to proclaim and in no other message than that. Don't think that we're smart, that we can conceive of a message greater than what God has given us to tell the world. Right? And so as people approved by God, whose hearts are pure and desirous for God's glory, we can be bold as we Preach the gospel knowing that this pleases our God who is in heaven. And I ask you, what greater motivation do you and I need than that? Please bow your heads. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your son who you sent to die upon the cross for our sins. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells the believer and teaches us and applies all of Christ's saving benefits to us. Father, we pray this day that the Spirit would apply what we have learned today to our hearts and our minds, that we might live it out this week and going forward, that you might grant to us greater boldness, greater courage, that we would not cower in fear against culture and society and their pressures, but rather we would speak boldly, knowing who our God is and the importance of this gospel message going forth, for the power is in the message. And so please, Father, teach us to understand this and to declare this with boldness. And we ask all this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.